Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in to GSA Office Hours. In this episode, Helene, president of the GSA, um, and I speak with Anna Rabasco, a PhD student in clinical psychology. Um, we initially invited Anna onto the show because she actually won um, the three-minute thesis competition last year, and graduate students are now sort of gearing up for that competition. So we wanted to see what her experience was like in the hopes that it could um, help all of you who are participating in the competition. So in this episode, we talk about um, an early experience she had working at a suicide help hotline in high school. We also talk about her background as a psychology um, and uh, women, gender, and sexuality double major at Colby in Maine. And then we move on to talk about how she balances um, her research with her clinical work and her role as a TA at Fordham. Uh, I want to apologize in advance if um, you can hear uh, like this like background noise. Um, we recently um, had the heater turned on in our uh, basement office in Keating, and we didn't realize how loud the noise would be, but I think all of the audio is still, um, you're still able to hear it. So apologize in advance for that noise, um, but Helene and I were super inspired by Anna and her research, and we hope you enjoy. Okay, here we go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, Anna, so welcome to the show. Helene and I are very excited to talk with you. Um, Thank you. Why don't we just start off, and why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, like where you're from, um, maybe where you went for undergrad. Um. Yeah, happy to. Um, So I am originally from Massachusetts, um, outside of Boston, um, and lived there all, same town my whole childhood, all through high school, and then I went to Colby College um, in Maine uh, for undergrad. and then I ended up in Rhode Island working for two years before I came to New York. So very Northeast centered. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's kind of my path. Um, I think it's a very sort of traditional like clinical psychology sort of structure in terms of like how, pe- how I ended up here um, in terms of like, you know, going to a small liberal arts college and then working for a couple years as a research assistant. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of Cool. Very short version of my path. And where were you a research assistant? I was at um, Butler Hospital, which okay. is a psychiatric hospital in Providence, yes. Rhode Island. Um, and it was a really great experience. Um, I worked on a couple of different studies on the causes of suicidal thoughts and behaviors in high-risk um, psychiatric inpatient population. So I spent some of my time on the unit with patients and then um, a chunk of time doing research as well. Okay, cool. I'm also from Massachusetts, oh. and I um, got my undergrad at Providence College, oh. so we have a lot of geographic similarities. Yes, we do. Um, yeah, I also saw um, on your CV that you were a psych and women's gender and sexuality studies and a creative writing um, minor. Do you want to maybe talk a little bit about how that those majors contributed to your decision to move on to research afterwards? Um, or what was your experience like at Colby? Yeah, so so I wasn't, so I always knew I wanted to do psychology. Okay. Um, 
but and then I had actually entered so I I always knew I was going to be a psychology major um and that that was probably kind of the path that I was going to go in I did enter Colby as a psychology and English double major um and then took a lot a number of classes in like pre-18 we have this requirement where I had to take a certain number of classes in like pre-1800 literature um and I was just like not wanting to take those classes. I was like, maybe this is a sign I shouldn't do this as a major. Um, and I really wanted to take a number of different classes in the women's gender and sexuality studies department. And so then I was like, this seems like a sign that maybe I should switch um, because that's really what I'm getting excited about. Um, and so I had, you know, I think halfway through switched to women's gender and sexuality studies, but I had already done a good chunk of the English requirement for the major so it was very easy to add on the creative writing um Uh, minor there and those were the classes that in terms of like English classes that I had been really excited about mm -hmm. um so I got to keep that as well and I think that it like actually really helped because I think you know with psychology being able to write um is a huge skill um and so I think that was very helpful to like take all those English classes and um, take the creative writing classes. So were you the kid like growing up that was like, I'm going to be a clinical researcher? <laughs> like, is it that early that you really knew that you were into it? I think I didn't know the research side of things. Right. I definitely, I think I, you know, it, it wasn't until probably like middle school, high school that I was like, oh, psychology. I think mm-hmm. before that I wanted to be like a dentist, which was like, right. <laughs> like so random. I don't, I liked my dentist, I guess. <laughs> she was really nice and I was like, I want to do that. But um, once, I think that it was really like around middle school, high school, I was reading a lot of like, I don't know if uh, either of you did, but like a lot of young adult sort of angsty, like of literature <laughs> like books, yeah. um, like had so many and I really gravitated towards the really like angsty, sad ones. And I was like, I think that maybe psychology or clinical psychology specifically mm-hmm. is like what I'm into. Um, and then I, I think I remember being like 13, 14 and thinking, you know, maybe I wanted to become a psychiatrist or, but then once I hit high school, I knew I think psychology was what mm-hmm. I was interested in. Are there any specific books you're thinking of? <laughs> Only because I'm an English major and I've read a lot of young adult novels mm-hmm. and I'm thinking we're the same age. Yeah. Um, like one I'm thinking of, well, this was, I didn't read on my own, but we read Go Ask Alice yes. in um, middle school. But I just remember being like very struck by that, that particular book and like how she would like count her French fries like <laughs> before she went to sleep in terms of... I think maybe she dealt with an eating disorder in that. Did you, have you read that one? I read it. It's fuzzy. I don't totally remember. I feel like it was, there were definitely mental health things going on. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I read that one. I read a lot of them. I remember reading one that actually really fits into what I'm doing now, um, a book called Cut, which was about somebody who Mm -hmm. self-injures, that I think was, you know, um, kind of a window into that. And Speak by Laurie Halsey. Oh, yeah. I love Speak. Yes, mm-hmm. such a good book. Um, so books like that, that yeah. definitely kind of stayed with me. And I, I've kept them. I have now moved a number of times, but I have this, like, probably my favorite, like, 20, 25 young adult books that I literally lug to every apartment because mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I just love them so much. Me too. <laughs> yeah, The Giver. I have, I oh. like Island of Blue Dolphins. Um, oh my gosh, that's a book I haven't heard in a long that's time. My fav- that was the first chapter book I ever read. Um, oh. I also really like this book called The Last of the Really Great Wang Doodles, which is by Julie Andrews, actually. Really? It's really lovely, yeah. I lost my copy. I think I lent it to a friend. Um, 
Okay, we're getting a little bit of sidetracked, but I do think <laughs> I do think that there's a lot of um, similarities between disciplines of psychology and English um, in terms of like analyzing like human relationships and emotion, um, which is interesting. But another route we could take would be um, a skill you definitely learn um, in the English literature classroom in addition to writing is also rhetoric and like particularly oral rhetoric um which you obviously are very skilled at since you won um the three minute thesis last year which is how I personally came across your name so why don't you just tell us a little bit about like what is the three minute thesis why did you decide to get involved we'll start there okay Yeah, so the three-minute thesis is um, a competition, I guess. Um, It sounds intense, um, but it's a competition where you have to boil down your thesis um, work into a three-minute sort of speech for lay people. Um, And it's memorized, and you give it, and it's judged. um, And I think that I... So there's a couple of reasons, I think, that I was really interested in... um, in participating I think one of them is that I really do try to expose myself to public speaking because I am I I, gent- I have in the past been a very nervous public speaker um, and That's me as well mm-hmm. yeah right and it's it was like I didn't speak my first two years of college I literally never participated in class like people would see me out and about and they'd be like oh you're the girl in my English class who never says anything um, and because I'm so like physiologically nervous mm-hmm. and then it was through like really kind of making myself participate and what I know now is exposure therapy. Um, I was kind of doing it for myself at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the three-minute thesis was basically like exposure therapy for me and like the kind of the probably most intense way that I've done so far in the fact that you're being judged and you have like an audience and you're competing against other people. Like it's, it feels like pretty intense. Um, Wait, quick question. Yeah. Uh, what is exposure therapy? Yeah. Um, so that is a great question. Exposure therapy is where somebody has like a phobia or anxiety um, and your natural instinct is sort of to avoid it, right? Because it's scary and it's making you uncomfortable. And exposure therapy is a way of um, kind of reducing that anxiety through exposing Mm -hmm. you to what you're afraid of in very small increments. Um, It's a treatment for OCD, right? Mm -hmm. Right, because people with OCD um, are, get these sort of really intrusive scary thoughts often and then that they engage in compulsions to get rid of the thoughts so you expose them to the anxiety and actually make them think about the thoughts and talk about the thoughts Mm -hmm. and that's really can be stressful so it's for OCD it's for phobias it's anxiety um yeah and so in my own way I had you know some a lot of anxiety about public speaking so exposing myself to that is a way of sort of reducing it and helping me be more comfortable Okay, so, so I was just going to say, so you signed up, mm-hmm. um, and then what happened next after you decided that you were going to participate in this? Um, did you work on your um, uh, your oral presentation on your own? Was there support from the university? Like, how did you go about deciding to sign up, and then the actual day of the competition delivering uh, your presentation? Yeah, so I... I don't even know if I had officially signed up yet. There's a training that they give um, that I, yeah, I think that they're giving again this year, but... um, Today. Today? Oh, it's today. (laughs) Okay. Um, Good. Because I thought it was helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, So I went to the training. Um, You just hear more about it um, and kind of what it looks like. I know I watched videos online 
but then the rest of it was kind of me drafting the speech on my own and then working with my mentor, um, Dr. Peggy Andover, um, who's amazing. And so she worked with me on kind of like getting this the speech, you know, kind of cohesive and um, concise, but also impactful. Um, and then I practiced it a lot. Um, so I probably wrote the speech. It's not it's not that long. Like it's not that much to say. It's only three minutes. So exactly. You got to keep it like pretty short. So it didn't take me all that long, I think, to write it. Um, and then I probably spent a week or two like really intensively practicing. Um, so I practiced it so many times because um, you know I wanted to be comfortable and I knew that practicing would be helpful for that. But I practiced it both um, for Peggy and also practiced it for like friends and family and stuff leading up to it so I actually signed up last year I went to the training I was going to do it and then I got busy and I also chickened out because I am uh, also extremely nervous about pre uh, presenting in public speaking so I'm a very loud extroverted person that loves to talk all the time and I did participate in class all the time but whenever it came to formally standing up and giving a speech or a presentation, I just crumbled and I couldn't do it. It was like when when you know you're being like judged on what you're saying, mm -hmm. it just like a panic attack. And so I do find that my the, the one key to me being able to successfully present is practicing, 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 and knowing exactly what you're going to say. Like, even when I just recently um, defended my proposal, having, like, the very rough presentation, I, I sat down with Alex and presented it, and it was, I could I could work out the kinks so much with someone that I knew wasn't going to, like, sit there and harshly judge me, and she could give me some feedback. And then spending the entire couple days after that, like, constantly practicing. So, this year, I have signed up again. <laughs> I'm going to the, the training later on today. And hopefully, I will get to the point where I can practice, 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 and get up there and do it successfully. So we'll see. Yeah. No, I think that the way I try to think of it, maybe this will be helpful for you, mm -hmm. is what is like the best or the worst that could happen? The best that can happen is that I win $1,000 and I get first place. The worst that can happen <laughs> is I mess up in front of people that probably are more worried about themselves than they are about me. Um, yes. And so sometimes just like putting it into context and getting a little perspective was helpful. Absolutely. And I've, I've recently run into that of like, or I have constantly been hearing that refrain of um, people are more worried about themselves. You know, I am always so worried about being judged and like what people think about me and all of these things. And it's like at the end of the day, people don't think about you. <laughs> it's okay. And that like takes some of that pressure off. So it's good advice. I want to participate, but I've decided <laughs> mostly not to participate this year, but because I feel as though my research isn't developed enough where I can um, boil it down to its essence. I think with my particular dissertation right now, I'm still in kind of a more exploratory phase and, and that I don't feel prepared. Um, so I have here, the title of your talk was called Risk Factors for Suicidal Behavior Among Transgender and Gender Non-Binary Individuals. Um, so I guess my first question will be, where were you in your research stage when you signed up? Um, in other words, were you in the middle of a project or did you already have this particular um, research in its uh, final stages? And then maybe could you talk a little bit about what you presented on, like the contents of that talk? Yeah, so I'm really trying to now think of the timeline of where I was. So I, I had my idea for my master's thesis 
like October of my first year, so very early. Um, my first year, I kind of like refined it um, with Peggy, and then I collected all my data the end of my the summer between first and second year. So I had all my data, and then I think I had cleaned it all, and I just started sort of like analyzing it and finalizing my thesis, which was due May of my second year. So I think last year, when I entered the competition, I was at this sort of like early stage of putting it all together still. Um, and so that was, I was kind of like at the forefront of that. Um, and like I said, finalized the, the thesis in May or June, I think. Um, so, and then your other question was, what was it about? <laughs> um, so what I talked about in the three minute thesis is like, it's so hard to boil it down. Of course. Because like my master's thesis was a longitudinal study of both risk and protective factors um so there was there was a lot more than what i talked about there um what i talked about in the three minute thesis was that that um victimization and discrimination uh that um trans people experience uh are is a really really strong risk factor for suicidal behaviors and that's the case even when you control for um like the other really strong risk factors for suicidal behaviors. So things like depression or previous suicide attempts um, or suicidal ideation. Even when you control for all of that, you have this external sort of, when you have this external stressor of victimization discrimination, it, you still are increased risk for suicidal mm -hmm. behavior. Um, and I think that, you know, the reason why I wanted to sign up for Three Minute Thesis, in addition for it being kind of just me focused of like, I need to expose myself and I want to be a better public speaker, was I think that this research is really important and I think the implications are really huge. Um, and so I wanted to talk about it outside of this sort of like bubble of suicide researchers, because um, I think we can kind of get stuck in that. Uh, Absolutely. And so to reach out and sort of talk about this work with the broader audience was really important to me. Um, and you know, I've been trying to think of since then like other ways in which I can sort of sort of talk about it um, because I think that it has policy implications, has clinical implications. Like, there's a lot there um, that can be done with it. Do you have any tips and tricks for you know either? Well, I guess there's two ends of it of of how you get from a full master's thesis and a year and a half of work into three minutes, and then also you know the day of like you know how to calm your nerves or how to get up there and just do what you know you can do but like without all of the anxiety that goes with it right so i think that in terms of boiling it down um I, it, I mean it was hard but it wasn't that hard because i think that i do have like there was a central sort of message there's a punchline there exactly um and so i for me for my work specifically i think it's a lot harder for other people's work um but to just really be like, okay, victimization, discrimination, serious risk factors for suicidal behavior, that's kind mm -hmm. of like the point. Um, and I could have pulled in all those other things which would have been fun to talk about, like what does that look like across time? And mm -hmm. what does that look like when you control for these things and that things? But I think that ultimately I benefited, I, I think psycho clinical psychology a lot of times is a little bit easier than other fields to boil it down um, to just sort of like a couple of sentences of your results. Um, but in terms of the day of, I mean, it's really the practice. Mm -hmm. It's practicing it so much that even like 
and I had filmed myself, um, which was really weird. Um, I remember, I think I still have the video on my phone. It's like so bizarre to watch yourself, but then I was like, why am I like standing like that? Why am I looking like, like you're able to critique yourself a little bit more. So I'd filmed myself a day or two before when I was practicing, which I think was definitely helpful. I'd recommend that to anybody who's doing the three minute thesis, even when it feels super awkward and weird. Um, and then the day of, I mean, I was really nervous. I remember being very nervous when I got there. Um, and like just physiologically nervous and that's a normal emotion. Um, and actually I think the adrenaline and sort of, uh, stress response is helpful because you're like, so like, you can be so focused. Ready, um, <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, but yeah, just like deep breathing. I, I always recommend that to clients that I work with. It's just like deep, like, uh, diaphragmatic breathing from your belly. Um, talk about. So that is helpful in reducing your physiological anxiety. Is that in through the nose, out through the mouth? Yep. Okay. Yeah. For like five seconds in, seven seconds out. Um, You can do progressive muscle relaxation at the same time if you're feeling super nervous too, where you um, are distressed. You can like really tighten your fists while you breathe in and then relax them as you breathe out. It's like another like way. I think it's a little bit helpful to like focus your attention on that sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I always like meditative techniques and breathing techniques, and sometimes I just confound them. I'm like, wait, which one? How many seconds? Like, <laughs> mouth, not nose, I don't know. So it's good yeah. to know. Yeah. There's also like a very clear ethical component to your research, and also it seems like um, your research both in the past and potentially future, and that you are often interested in not only kind of like mental health and well-being, um, but also helping particular groups that are kind of struggling the most. I don't know, could you maybe just talk a little bit about um, your personal motivations behind this research or what kind of is driving these research interests? Because this is a serious topic and one that's really important. Right, and when I look at it, I wonder whether you were interested in suicide itself and then within suicide you discovered the fact that um like the transgender uh gender i'm sorry what what is the phrase again transgender so people use different terminology Mm -hmm. i usually just shorten it to trans in conversation because i think it's easier um but you can say trans and non-binary trans and gender diverse yeah that's right okay okay and so like did you realize did, did it start with you know being um you know, interested in studying suicide and then finding that these the, this particular group was extremely at risk, or was it that you had an interest in this subgroup of the population and then you found that there's this glaring problem um, that's that puts these people at a super high risk uh, within that that community? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think that um, it started it definitely started with the suicide work. Um, And so I became interested in suicide research. I volunteered on a suicide hotline through high school and college. Um, And so talked to, yeah, Boston has the Samaritans of Boston is this uh, organization that uh, is a suicide hotline. You answer both the national calls. So like if you see the suicide hotline like number out in the world, that's they get routed through both Boston, uh, Samaritans Mm -hmm. of Boston and then other organizations. Um, So I started, they have a team program, which is incredible. really I wanted hands-on research experience or not research volunteer experience and that was like the best way to do it um and then really really um loved my time there and stuck around for a while um and answered a lot of calls talked to a lot of people who were suicidal and then 
knew, so I had that kind of in the back of my mind. I then went into, um, you know, went through college, did the... Can I pause you for yeah. a second? What was that like? Yeah. yeah. Answering those Super calls. Super emotional must have, must have been, like, personal. I don't know if you could um, share in anything in a vague way, if there are any, a particular phone call that stood out the most, or... Yeah, I mean, I think that, looking back, it's it's so funny that I was I started when I was 15 years old um so so young I'm like who who let me do that (laughs) um but no I think that um I mean it was a great experience I don't know if I fully understood like the gravity of it at the time um I think that just in terms of I was so young that like I was just like yeah I want to do this and they and they really do train you a lot um I think it wasn't until I was on the phone and I had some really intense calls with people that I was like whoa like this is actually a lot um but I think at the end of the day like um it was really helpful to hear you know different people's um perspectives and kind of what they were struggling with and just the fact that just being there for people is so important um and a lot of people called us and were extremely socially isolated um extreme like really really struggling had no like they they call the suicide hotline as their main form of social support so um which i think is really um indicative of how isolated a lot of people are and how much isolation sort of feeds into suicidality um but but yeah so i'm trying to think there are definitely calls that were very intense so we had i i mean over the course of seven years definitely had like medical emergency calls where i had people you know, who had, you know, firearms with them or had, were right by a subway station, um, and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, so those stay with me because they were like, of course, really intense. Um, but I think it also showed me that like, I am the type of person who can do that work. Um, and I don't know like how that comes across so much, but I definitely saw other volunteers who were, like traumatized um or who would hang up the phone and just cry Mm -hmm. um after a tough call or would be really really anxious and stressed out and I I didn't have that reaction so much um and I think that and I and I was able to leave the work at the call center um Mm -hmm. I I mean of course there were certain calls that stayed with me but um it wasn't like I was like ruminating about them like couldn't fall asleep um sort of thing and so I think that that was indicative that I could handle like being in this line of research why do you think you were able to do that was it some sort of because you knew you were helping others and that you had been there for them or yeah I guess so I guess it's this idea that like it was better than nothing that even if the call went badly um we were still there for people um I think some of the hardest part was when I so I when I was in college I would do the overnight shift because it's really hard to fill so I would do 11 p.m to 7 a.m by myself um in this call center and we would get so many calls I mean sometimes I would take like 50 calls in a night and you hear you can hear the phone ringing when you're on the phone with somebody else and so I think one of the hardest parts was um because I used like being there for people as so much like a comfort to myself of like at least there's somebody um and even if things go badly but I think that um it was when I would be on the calls and um hearing like all these people calling who couldn't get through Mm. that was probably one of the harder parts but yeah I don't know I think it's just who I am too I don't know how to describe it um Mm. but I think certain people are able to compartmentalize and I think I'm a very sort of compartmentalized 
I'm like that as well. Human, yeah. But I, I do see, like, I, I think especially now with the internet and the way that our culture has become, like, so much inward-facing rather than, like, outward-facing, I feel like that must be such, like, a big um, contributing factor to this, like, increasing feeling of isolation and depression, anxiety, and, you know, maybe this tendency to not have this social network. And, I mean, at least there are there are resources like the suicide hotlines that people can reach out to mm-hmm. in this, like, especially in a day like today. And that is such a problem, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know a lot of times now they do, like, text crisis lines and stuff, but I think that, and, and those are amazing, and I think it helps people reach out who are, like, nervous about, like, using a phone. Mm-hmm. Um, but... I really liked being able to actually talk to somebody. Um, I think that there was, like, this real human, like, sort of quality to it. Um, and you can get so much more from somebody, like, through tone of voice or, Absolutely. like, stuff happening in the background or that sort of thing when you're talking on the phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess, I mean, I guess my next, next question will be, since you... Um, seem to be very well suited to -to face-to-face interactions with others. How do you think, um, or what are some skills you've drawn on in order to perform your research? Because when we think of um, writing a master's thesis or preparing uh, an article for publication, a lot of times we find ourselves um, in the library or in our apartments um, kind of isolated ourselves working on research so I mean looking at your CV too you're just like a very prolific researcher Mm -hmm. at this stage in your career we can use that term um so why do you enjoy research so much like how have you become a better researcher um how do you balance the research um potentially with your your clinical work as well yeah so many questions um I have a lot of thoughts (laughs) um So I think that in part, the research side of things for me is like really where my passion is. Um, I love, I also love clinical work, um, but I am an introvert, um, even though I think I come across as very like friendly um, and sociable, um, I do get more energy from being alone. And so I think about what time parts of the week, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, what parts of the week am I most excited for? And I'm excited for my days that I can spend mostly doing research. and I think because I get more like energy from that. Whereas when I am doing clinical work, which I do two full days a week of um, clinical work and then some other clinical work on the side. So I still very much do that, but by the end of the day, I'm like exhausted. Um, And so I think that that has been kind of a hint to me that research is definitely the sort of path that I wanna pursue for like at least a chunk of my time. But I always see myself doing clinical work because that's where I get a lot of my research ideas. So I think that going back to um, like this idea of like sort of how I ended up doing this type of work, um, it started with the suicide side of things, but then when I was working on inpatient units in Providence, Rhode Island um, as a research assistant, um, we had a number of trans patients and participants in these research studies. I saw kind of like how they were treated on the inpatient unit, which wasn't always great, um, and heard like they're like part of my job is to do clinical interviews with them, and so to really hear about like what are your biggest like stressors, like what's the most like what traumatizing things have you gone through? Like these were like very intense interviews, um, but to hear like that feedback and then to see the statistic on top of that that like forty percent of trans people attempt suicide in their lifetime, I was like. Well, this wow. definitely seems like sort of the road to go down. Um, and it's it's attempt, not even ideations of suicide. Right. So wow. ideation is around like 80%. Um, 
um, wow. sometimes people uh, think about suicide. Um, and and in my sample, it was uh, those it matched other research studies. Um, and so yeah, it's really really high. Um, and I think it's unnecessary suffering. Um, so definitely and. and a way like I think possible to sort of intervene as well um but yeah so the research is like really what I think I get excited about but I get my inspiration for research from clinical interaction so I think that it goes hand in hand it's interesting so thinking about that as more of like a, a cyclical or complementary relationship rather than like opposed mm-hmm. to each other or definitely that. yeah it really goes hand in hand Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I think that if I was I mean I'm an extrovert through and through like very very extroverted but like I still like having the research aspect of it to like just take a little bit of a break or to do something different but if I was always doing research I I don't know that I could I could sit in an office all day and just do research by myself I think Mm -hmm. I definitely need the social component of it as well and I agree like Mm -hmm. I think that I if I I would become lonely right also just like totally in my head like probably my research ideas wouldn't even make sense because I couldn't even like like actually have that real world sort of application Mm -hmm. yeah I guess my next question will just be we've talked a little bit about just how different graduate students um have felt about graduate school like more generally Mm -hmm. um and what types of like routines um or hobbies they have held on to to kind of make the process uh, more enjoyable um, to put it in a very positive way um so what have you what what do you think about graduate school when if someone is coming to you and they're thinking like oh I'm thinking of getting a master's or a PhD in psych what type of um, advice do you give them yeah that is Great question, and also very pertinent because we, it's our application, ap- like applicant interview day today oh, okay, um, in the clinical mm-hmm. department. So after this, I'm going to go over and meet with a bunch of them. Um, but I think that so it's interesting. Clinical PhD, I think, is different than a lot of other PhDs because we have this these clinical this clinical hour component. Um, so like I said, I do um, two full days a week. Um, on it right now, I'm um, an extern, a psychology extern on an inpatient unit um, for personality disorders. And so I do that two days a week. um, Mm -hmm. And then I also kind of do some clinical work on the side in terms of um, seeing, you know, um, research participants for uh, therapy studies and stuff like that. So um, it's a lot because you're doing all of that, um, which is can be very demanding and sort of emotionally exhausting. But at the same time, you still have all the teaching requirements. You still have all the research stuff you have to do. You still have classes, so we take classes all through our third year, um, up up through three years, um, and yeah, and then just like other things that kind of like chip away, like because like we're being part right. of organizations or stuff like that. Um, so it's a lot. Um, I think partially that's helpful though because it's so varied. Like once I'm like kind of sick of clinical work then I transition over to doing my research and I'm able to like jump back and forth a little bit but I think it takes like incredible ability to sort of like time manage Mm -hmm. um so I think that that's a huge thing going into grad school um is sort of the time management piece and also really truly loving what you do like I think that people that come into it and are just kind of like oh this is interesting I guess I'll study it It, I don't think it's they're going to be more unhappy Mm -hmm. um whereas I feel like what I'm doing is like so important to me and really a part of my identity um 
and fulfilling and like that's what I think at the end of the day gets me through and the fact that I'm like able to study this topic as my job and get paid for it in addition to all the other things um Mm -hmm. I think it's really just like a privilege so I try to remind myself of that when I've been working like very long hours and I'm exhausted and all of that um so definitely in terms of talking to people who are thinking about grad school it's the time management piece it's loving what you do um to really have that intrinsic motivation to keep going forward because you don't get a lot of positive feedback like right it's, it's mostly just you're doing what you're doing and that's what's expected or you're getting critical feedback so you have to have that intrinsic like motivation to keep pushing absolutely and i feel like it's yeah I I definitely agree with that and it's kind of it's easy to lose that a little bit when you are are getting a lot of like criticism or it's just Mm -hmm. a negative energy or whatever like it's it's so good to have that like passion to go forward I feel like it's it it is just like so difficult sometimes though and I will say that like on the time management piece I find that at least for me when I have too much open time, and that sounds like great for doing research, mm-hmm. then it just turns into more procrastination. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I have things scheduled and I know, oh, I only have like these two hours to get this amount of stuff done or this research done, then that like gives me like a little bit of a kick in the butt to like really work on those things. So sometimes like actually having your schedule set out in a way that's like you have things on the calendar that you have to do. And then it organizes your, it like forces you into organizing your time and your, and your schedule. Exactly. But I do want to, I like make the point that I, part of why I chose Fordham, um, was because I felt like it was the type of program that I could also do self-care in, like that they were like a supportive department and Peggy, my mentor is like very, very positive. Um, so I get a lot of positive feedback from her, which is what I wanted. I needed somebody who was positive, who also valued like who I am as a person and, and respected that like sometimes I go on vacation or like wasn't like you know always throwing things at me absolutely <laughs> to do. and my advisor uh Dr. Mani in the economics department she is like so great she's kind of a little intimidating just because she works so much and so hard and she's so impressive but she is the one person that I feel like I consistently get like the positive um like push from where it's like no you're on the right track you're doing the right thing and it's so important to like at least have one person to find that can whether it's a friend or an advisor or just another faculty member in your department your dgs or whatever that can just say like no you're doing okay like it's not you know sometimes it is always just like a little bit hard to be like constantly self-driven for me self-driven and say like I'm doing the right thing like I'm I chose the right path or whatever so getting like just that little bit of external validation and finding the person that will give that to you is always helpful when in academia it can sometimes be like that critical or negative feedback that you get yeah it's interesting because I do think that the idea of like self-care for graduate students comes up a lot Mm. and at times I find the term somewhat abstract in that I think that there are often times um it becomes conflated with yoga and meditation particularly seem to come up a lot eating right yeah yeah eating vegetables um (laughs) so I'm not sure if what what are other or I don't know if, if you guys have seen this in your own department but I think the idea of like thinking back on what you actually what you enjoy and going back to your earlier comment about um how the days that you do research like energize you like thinking about 
as a graduate student, what activities or um, conversations or people make you feel energized? Like, I almost wonder if there's kind of a methodology about finding your own self-care as opposed to looking to the prescribed activities that are associated. I don't right. Yeah, what are your guys' thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a great point because I think that there is this I, sort of, like, idea of what self-care is and I'm not into cooking and I'm not into um like yoga and like so all of the like traditional things I'm like I'm not gonna do I consider self-care like to be just like what do I what do I enjoy doing and like just taking time off work if that means like Mm -hmm. I'm gonna sleep in on a Saturday that's my self-care um so I guess I use a very broad definition or like last night I went to a concert that was my self-care because like that's what I enjoy doing um and being, like, not feeling guilty for taking time off to do the guilt. Things. That's yeah. for, like, for sure exactly how I view it. It's, like, something that, like, I normally feel guilty about and, like, allowing myself to not feel guilty about it. Because I feel like there's such um, a competitive nature, too. So you feel like if you're not, or at least, like, for me, like, I just kind of feel like if I'm not working, like, I'm not living up to it. I'm not going to be the best. Or I'm not going to do whatever. And it's, like, no, actually, if you take the breaks and allow yourself to relax and you allow yourself to go out to dinner or take a vacation or spend time with family and friends like those things allow you to focus even more hard when you sit down again and do the work right you feel rejuvenated Mm -hmm. and I think that's the important thing um and I've noticed like even just this past weekend I took like two days off and didn't answer email or anything and it felt like it was really nice Mm -hmm. (laughs) to do that For the past maybe two months or so, I, for the most part, have taken weekends off and have, to the best of my ability, not done any work all weekend, which is a routine that I have not done before, and I've been really trying not to feel guilty or have any negative associations with doing that, and I found that, like, my Monday through Friday has gone so much better, like, I've been more productive, I've been excited to get back to my work on Monday rather than... Um, apprehensive about it Um, so that's one new kind of strategy I've been doing and I think it's a lot more effective Um, because when I was in coursework I would spend the whole weekend reading and then maybe go out to dinner um, or go out with friends on like a Friday or Saturday night and I've like completely stopped doing that Um, I have the opposite problem so like I feel like I have usually taken weekends off not not like fully but just like fully like uh you know, like, didn't feel guilty about taking weekends off, and then just felt, like, a lot of guilt during the week, so now I'm doing, like, kind of the, I think it just depends on the type of person you are, Mm -hmm. but, like, for me, just on Saturdays and Sundays, or one of the, or the other, like, saying, like, just one hour of work, if you do one hour of work, then you can, like, not feel guilty for the rest of the week, and actually that's been, like, it's probably the opposite of what most grad students need for advice, but for me, it's actually helpful. It really depends on the person. Yeah. And I think it's helpful to, like, zoom out. I sometimes have to zoom out and get a little perspective, and it's like, it is not normal to be expected to work seven days a right. week constantly, like, ten hours. Like, that's not normal. I think it was really helpful for me to have a job where I worked 40 hours a week. I had incredible mentors and bosses there, supervisors who were like, no, you work 40 hours a week and they wouldn't give me work outside of that, um, which is very wow. I think, unusual um, mm-hmm. in academia because um, they were, you know, faculty and, and had these huge research studies. But I think they really like instilled that sort of mm-hmm. thing. So even though I do work way more now, I'm still like, I don't need to feel guilty for taking time off because yeah. like a normal person works way less than this, I think. Absolutely. Who knows? <laughs> for sure. Yeah. yeah. 
So where are you now and what does the next year look like for you? So I am in my third year now, um, which is very, very busy. Um, It's, yeah, it's a lot. Um, I am kind of in the midst of things. I think that, um, you know, next fourth year will be, um, you know, quite a bit of focus on teaching um, because right now I TA'd my first year um, for the department and then last year and this year I'm like lead TA. Um, So basically I... Um, train new TAs and I answer questions and I also run a tutoring program oh, wow. um, for the undergrads in the department um, but but yeah so it is however I think at the end of the day less work than TAing or teaching so I'm getting like geared up oh, that's for good. that next year though because now next year I'm going to be um, like the way the clinical department works is you teach like a 2-1 load or 1-2 load same, um, same with economics same with mm-hmm. economics gotcha what um, courses are you did you TA for I did foundations um, of psychology, so like the typical intro, and then research methods. Mm-hmm. Okay, and what um, responsibilities did you have as a TA for those classes? Yeah, so I don't know how it is in other departments. Um, I know that compared to other clinical departments in other schools, it's actually like a lot of work. <laughs> um, so you basically teach a lab component, so you have like 20, 30 students, um, and you meet for like an hour and a half a week, you have your own syllabus, you have your own curriculum, you have your own, like you assign lab reports, you grade lab reports, like it's a lot. Um, And you get all these like student emails constantly, which I think is like so time consuming and stressful. Um, So that, it it was a lot of work. Um, And certain times, like I remember just like each, even if you only have 30, if you have 30 students and you're trying to you know, only grade lab reports, usually they take like 15, 20 minutes each. That is still a huge, huge time commitment. Absolutely. So it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that. I did find though, I didn't realize I was going to love teaching as much as I mm-hmm. did. And now I think it definitely, I think in terms of looking forward kind of fits into that question because I did not think I was going to want to go into academia. And I think after teaching and then realizing I love research um, I'm like wait I think that might be the path for me which is very intimidating because of how you know difficult academia, academia <laughs> is right um, and so and, and I had thought maybe I had wanted to go more the clinical route for a little while um, and so I've been kind of back and forth but I think I made like the determination um, recently that I'm gonna at least try for academia and see what happens um, Why not? Right? right and yeah. then if not it's an easier transition to go from trying for academia to go into clinical work than the other way around. Absolutely. So I just set myself up for that. It's so funny. People are like, oh, why don't you just like work for a few years after and then go back to academia? I'm like, it's not how it works. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. So So when, um, when does the dissertation proposal come for you? So that's, Probably, I still feel like I'm recovering from my master's thesis, (laughs) Um, but that is probably going to come sometime my end of my fourth year. Okay. Because I need, I want to get the proposal out of the way before I apply for internship, which will be my last year of the program, which is like a a clinical year, but it's like a residency for um, psychologists, psychology students. So you have, like, a big research project where you follow these individuals over time and, mm-hmm. you know, for your master's thesis. That was, like, it culminated in your master's thesis, correct? So are you continuing on with, the, like, that project or an extension of that project? Are you kind of formulating new studies to do? Um, still focused on, I'm assuming, like, the uh, transgender and gender diverse community and suicide and continuing on that route? Yeah, I 
I think so. Um, so I'm interested in kind of diving in a little deeper into the question. Um, I'm very interested in a methodology called ecological momentary assessment, okay. um, where people basically you send surveys to somebody's phone, like really short surveys, mm -hmm. multiple times a day, and you really get this fine-grained sort of understanding of fluctuations in suicidality, fluctuations in like different experiences that lead to that, because what we know about suicidal ideation is it's so variable. Absolutely. It can change over the course of minutes, hours, mm -hmm. days. Um, and so when you're doing a traditional research study, you're asking about somebody about, you know, maybe the, I feel like at best probably the past week, but usually you're asking people about lifetime or past month, and so people are really bad at remembering. Absolutely. <laughs> I deal with this in economics a lot. I'm in microeconomics, so we do a lot of household surveys, and you know, in the past week, what have you consumed, or what, what have you spent money on, and even, you know, what, like, in the past week, have you felt depressed, have you felt these ways, and it's just like, I can barely remember this morning, like, how right. these people can recall weeks ago. Yeah. Right, and you're, it's so, like, influenced by how you're feeling in the moment. So like, if I have a really bad day, I'm probably, you know, talking about the past week, month, mm -hmm. or lifetime, like in one way versus not. Um, so I'm really interested in like, kind of capturing this in real time. Um, and specifically looking at suicidality um, within this community, then kind of like an extension of my master's thesis. Mm -hmm. But I am also interested in other sort of populations. I'm interested in people who have chronic pain because they're another group mm -hmm. of people. I'm basically interested in high-risk groups. Yeah. Um, and, and I think overarching a lot of this is how people feel about their body, how connected people feel to their body. Um, and so I've done some work on that, like with pain tolerance and suicidality. Um, That's super interesting. Yeah, so there's like, I think overarching sort of mm -hmm. questions there. Especially um, with the opioid crisis and the chronic pain problems that are going on. It's just, you know, how you can balance the two, how you can resolve the two, two like major issue of chronic pain, mm -hmm. the solution being opioids, but having such horrible repercussions to the addiction portion of it. It's, uh, it's I can't imagine how. Yeah, no, it's like a very much a, a, a very difficult problem um, to sort of think about. Um, and, but also like very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, for sure. Yeah. And so for your study, uh, this is probably getting a little too into the weeds, but I just really find it interesting. So for your study, you um, looked at this, uh, that was 180 mm -hmm. participants at one point in time and then followed up a month later. Okay, so what like what was the um, like decision around the time frame and like what do you think that you picked up in that one month? Was it like a different frame of mind that you saw or you know did you think that it would have been too quick to look at one day or one week after or too long to look at one year after? You know what was that time frame like? Because like I'm interested in longitudinal studies as well, so always like wondering about what these are, the longitudinal study I'm looking at right now is from 2007 and then 2014, um, you know, follow-up. So it's much different and much longer time frame, so. Right, right. So those are all great questions. I think a lot of it was logistically for both uh, my mentor Peggy and I were concerned about um, if I followed up for like too late. Right, um, retention. The, both the retention and then also I think just like needing, having deadlines for the master's thesis. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't want to be like, oh, I'm gonna follow up in like six months and then what if like, right. like I couldn't get it done in time or something, I don't know, or something went wrong. So um, we chose basically one month because it was long enough where I felt like may, there should be some sort of variability and, mm -hmm. and you will see variability even over the course of days, but I think just definitely wanted um, to see some of that movement in suicidal ideation. Um, and then also, um, 
but having it be short enough that I could get my master's thesis done in time. Makes sense. But it, it, yeah, it brings up a lot of, like, logistical issues. I think that if I had asked people in a shorter period of time, um, you typically want to ask people, like, again and again when you're doing ecological momentary assessment, so you can't just, like, ask them, like, one day later, Mm -hmm. one time. Um, And it gets tricky paying them. So I think that that's a question that people, or a thing people don't really talk about, but I think it's incredibly important to pay um, research participants, especially people from vulnerable communities who have a very, um, who have been researched a lot, um, and it's a huge, like, emotional burden, I think, to fill out mm-hmm. a lot of these surveys. I'm asking them about the worst time in their life. It takes time mm-hmm. to do it, um, so I, even if it's not a lot of money, I believe in paying them, so that's uh, what my three-minute thesis money went towards, was paying participants, um, because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's important to me, but I think that it does get tricky with the ecological momentary assessment um, stuff because I would I did a pilot study over the summer um, that I'm hoping to expand on for my dissertation and I received funding from an organization um, uh, it was like a, a small grant to pay 10 people um, but it was $500 for 10 people uh, so it really adds up quickly so it's tricky I just I know I can't I'm so glad that they chose you as the winner yes, and that that money went back into your research. I'm not surprised, but <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's awesome. really good to hear. Yes. I mean, we just covered so much. Um, I, maybe I'll just ask one last question, but before that, is there anything about your research or experience as a grad student that you would like to share? I've shared a lot already. <laughs> I know, yeah. I've talked a lot. Any, like, maybe topics we didn't cover? And I just have one more question about your research. So you said that you had to boil it down for the three-minute thesis and you didn't really know, you know, there were so many other things you could bring into it, you know. What was, at the end of the day when you did complete the master's thesis from this study, like, what was the punchline? Like, what is, what did you find? Did you find anything that was, like, super surprising in the study? Um, You know, what is the takeaway from that that project and that study? Right, so I think that... um, I mean, the takeaway is very much in line with the three-minute thesis. Mm-hmm. I think I also, a piece that I really didn't get the chance to talk about was the longitudinal aspect. Mm-hmm. So I looked at change in suicidal ideation from right. baseline to follow-up. Um, and I also looked at protective factors, which I didn't get the chance to talk about. And that actually, um, I recruited off of reddit.com, um, mm-hmm. uh, which is a great platform to recruit from. Um, but you're, And you're also able to get a lot of participant feedback. Um, so participants were like, why aren't you looking at more positive things? And I was like, that's a good point. I should do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that really the takeaway is that actually it's low and medium levels of victimization discrimination that are associated with a decrease in suicidal ideation. So it's actually really protective. It's kind of like a backwards way to yeah. think of it. But we can see that suicidal ideation really responds to lower levels of those things. Um, and so I think that that shows that like suicidal ideation is really malleable to Mm -hmm. external factors um and so that's a really great point of intervention i think from a societal standpoint like um you know some work i'm doing now is on anti-discrimination laws and how people respond differently um and how that impacts suicidality in um, this community and so i think that um really the point is that I think it's a societal implication like I think it's more than just like oh there's this group of people and they're really sad and they want to kill themselves Mm -hmm. it's more like what are we doing as a society to actually help support and accept this community Um, yeah yeah, and and we can like everybody can have an impact on that Um, and so I think it's like really puts the onus on all of us um, which hopefully is something that um, 
I can continue to communicate. Um, mm-hmm. And I think hopefully will then result in work that helps to reduce the high rate. And at the end of um, our conversation here, too, I'll actually include the audio to your three-minute thesis. So those listening at the end of this will can listen to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just really my last question um, kind of is in line with um, your comment here about... <sighs> Although, you know, you stated that you're very interested in policy, I guess maybe at kind of like the ground floor level or even just grad students at Fordham, like, are there any maybe like slight everyday changes that, you know, as graduate students or as New Yorkers, we can um, implement in our everyday lives to like either promote awareness about this issue or just in terms of slightly how we approach meeting new people or those with with suicidal thoughts that, you know, you wouldn't even know that they're experiencing this? I know that's a very broad question, but were there, and maybe to phrase it another way, were there particular actions that individuals should avoid um, in making assumptions about others when you meet them for the first time or inhabiting the train, um, even teaching as a graduate student in the classroom? I was going to bring that up. Um, so I think that there's, you know, it's a very complicated yeah. issue. Um, there's no, like, easy fix, but something that I think is important, um, I tend to not use gendered pronouns with people until I know. Um, so using they, them, I think is, like, pretty acceptable now, um, and I think it's better than, you know, I, I think that there's no harm in using gender-neutral mm-hmm. pronouns until you know. Um, and then with students, just really making sure that you call them by their correct name, um, if it's, especially if it's different than what's on the attendance, and I know I've had that with multiple mm-hmm. students, um, making, you know, asking students, I know a lot of um, people who teach will ask for, like, you know, send out an index card on the first day, just write down, like, your pronouns and your name and how to pronounce it. Um, even students who aren't part of the trans community, like, want their name pronounced correctly, Absolutely. especially as somebody who I pronounce my name Anna, and you were both <laughs> great about double-checking on that, but a lot of people call me Anna and repeatedly mess that up, mm-hmm. and it, like, annoys me, and so I can't imagine if, you know, um, you're trans and somebody's calling you the wrong name or mm-hmm. pronoun, that's, like, way um, worse, and so um, I think that that's one way, um, and, yeah, and then there's certain ways, I think, certain organizations, I do want to give a shout out to the Trans Trans Lifeline. Okay. Um, it's an organization that um, is provides um, suicide hotline services by trans people for trans people. Um, they're really great. Um, they're very sort of grassroots organization. I, rec- I always give that resource to participants of mine um, because, you know, I think that that's important to provide resources. Um, and they also provide, this organization provides micro-grants um, to help trans people um, pay for, like, changing their ID or, you know, documentation. Like, it's expensive to change your name, um, and they provide small grants for that um, and other things. So just give a shout-out to that, and I try to, um, you know, one of the options I've given participants in the, in the past is instead of them receiving the money, donating it to Trans Lifeline. So I know that I've, um, you know, I think that that's a nice option. So. Maybe we can link our, that website yeah. with our podcast. Absolutely. Oh, that would be so nice. Mm-hmm. And looking forward is if there's anything, you know, the Graduate Student Association, Helene and I can do to support Absolutely. this cause or there's any way we can help, you know, just let us know. Mm-hmm. Um, we have access to email. We have some funding for event programming. So yes. we're, like, 
in full support. To our listeners, too. Yes. Yes. Please reach out. All right. Anything else? Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, this is great. Great. That was such a good conversation. All right. Thanks for listening in. Uh, To conclude the episode, I'm just going to include uh, Anna's 3MT talk so you can uh, hear it. Uh, And just a reminder, her talk was titled Risk Factors for Suicidal Behaviors Among Transgender and Gender Non-Binary Individuals. All right, enjoy. a second-year medical student died in Massachusetts. His obituary stated that he died at home, surrounded by his family. Except he actually wasn't at home, and he wasn't with his family. Instead, he was outside, alone, where he died by suicide. Approximately one million people die by suicide annually worldwide, and in the United States, suicide is the tenth leading cause of death overall. Among people between the ages of 10 and 34, suicide is the second leading cause of death. Suicide rates are going up, and even suicide experts struggle to predict who will attempt suicide. Despite its prevalence, suicide is still a really taboo topic, one that is covered up in obituaries and talked about in hushed tones. We know that suicide does not discriminate. It occurs in every country, throughout the lifespan, and across racial and ethnic identities. However, there are certain groups who are at heightened risk for suicide. My research is on those groups. Specifically, I work with people who are transgender or gender non-binary, or TGNB for short. TGNB people are assigned the incorrect gender at birth, and as we can see from this graph, they're at really heightened risk for suicide. Approximately 40% of TGNB individuals attempt suicide in their lifetime, whereas in the general population, about 4% of people do. This begs the question, what about TGNB people's experiences places them at this heightened risk for suicide? In order to answer this question, I recruited 180 TGNB individuals to complete a survey online. And what my results show are that TGN, are that Uh, TGNB individuals experience really high rates of victimization or cruel and unjust treatment based on their gender identity. My results also show that current victimization is the most salient risk factor for future suicide attempts, above and beyond things like past victimization, body satisfaction, and even depression. What this tells us is that TGNB individuals attempt suicide in large part because of dangerous, toxic and harmful environments that they're living in. And therefore, if we can improve those environments, we can help to reduce that high rate of suicide among TGNB people. We have to do more than just bring suicide out of the margins, although that's really important too. We also, as a collective community, have to come together to create an environment that's accepting, respectful, and kind to all people, regardless of gender identity. Only then will we see positive change. Thank you.